Welcome to the Energetic Radio Podcast. My name is Dale Sidebottom. Each week, I'll bring you inspirational guests who will help you bring fun, energy, and purpose into your lives. Let the show begin. All right, everyone, welcome back to the podcast, episode number 315 with Paul White. How are you, Paul? As you're taking a big sip of your water there, mate. Yeah, you put me on the spot. You said you were going to talk a lot, and then here I am getting recorded, and I wasn't ready. And dang, we're not starting. We're not starting the show off on a good foot here, buddy. No, we we definitely are, mate. Don't worry about that. Now, before we get into your story, and it is, I'm really excited to listen to and learn from you, particularly, mate. Um, what's made you smile in the last seven days? Has there been a moment, situation, somebody that's really lit you up? Oh, well, I mean, just in the, in the very short term, I got my wife back on Saturday night. That was, that was kind of a win. She'd been out of town for 10 days. I've been home alone and we've, we've had a roller coaster the last couple of months of just a lot of family stuff going on and, and a lot of moving parts. And it's kind of like, you know, you go through these seasons of your life and you kind of get caught in this buzzsaw every now and then. And thankfully we're both fairly resilient people. And we kept saying, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. It's going to get better. Well, it got better Saturday night and I was able to pick her up from the airport and we've been enjoying each other's company now for the last couple of days. Uh, amazing, mate. When you, when you said, when you started that story and you said, I just got my wife back. I, I, I didn't <laughs> didn't know where that was going. Did you? <laughs> Sorry, mate. I, I shouldn't, you never, she's you been never locked should. up in a dungeon or, or she's been in prison or yeah, that could have went anywhere. Right. Yeah. Uh, I could have. And that's sorry. I, I started laughing. She's been locked up for 26 years. Finally got her back and we're going to put her to work next week. So. <laughs> oh, I love that. Now it's always good when you can uh, start with a bit of humor. And um, I want to talk about your career because obviously retired 21 years in the air force as a vet, yeah, man. Um, over a hundred 50 hours in combat amazing um but I want, i'm more fascinated about like while you're growing up um a lot of the time mm -hmm. people have you know role models that i know I, I was a teacher paul and i had two teachers that i just wanted to be like because the impact they had on me yeah. um growing up did you always want to be um you know in the air force did you want to was that something that you strive for or was there somebody in your life that you know you that really led and motivated you to go down that path of service yeah. Yeah. Um, before we, before I go into that, man, can, can we make some assumptions here that people understand that I'm in the U S and you're in, you're, you're not, and, and that I'm speaking to you that. in the future. And, and when you say the air force, I'm talking about the United States air force. And okay. So let's just put that to bed for a second, but to answer your question pointedly, dude, when I saw top gun, when I was about eight or nine years old, airplanes just did it for me. I don't know why, but I always got off on airplanes. The problem was, is I grew up on a cotton farm and down in the Southeast United States and very rural community, not a lot of, I mean, I knew zero people that were in the military when I was growing up. So, you know, trying to get into that, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I didn't have any mentors available to me in, in that regard. So I literally, man, I just made it up as I went and I got pretty good at that. And I think that that's a skill, you know, when you develop that kind of being able to think on the fly and look at the horizon and say, well, I wonder what's over there and be fearless enough to go chase it. That's a skill that I don't know, man, it served me pretty well. Yeah. And I suppose sometimes when you don't have that guidance and you start from a young age, you know, figuring it out yourself, you never reliant on anybody else. I suppose, you know, that's a really good yeah. way to be resilient or, um, you know, be able to handle different situations yeah. because if you do have somebody to go back on to, or for say, you know, your parents or a role model or a coach mm -hmm. or someone, mm -hmm. then you, sometimes instead of thinking about how you can overcome it, 
you go default mode back to somebody that's yeah. done that before. Um, so well, I like. Well, the way let you me think hold up. Let me yeah. let, let me double down on that. Okay, so not only my career, but my wife and I got married, and we were young. We were twenty three when we got married. We met when we were twenty. We were twenty three when we got married, and six months after we got married, we moved to Alaska. Our closest family was five thousand miles away. So wow. you want to talk about learning resilience and independence, <laughs> man, we had to learn how to do this stuff on our own, you know, cause you can't just take the kids over to grandma's and go out on date night. We learned how to be independent parents. And I think that that taught us the most invaluable lessons when we were a young family of learning how to do stuff on our own. You learn how to have fun as a family. You don't have to pawn off your kids to go to the grocery store and things like that. Like I see a lot of other people doing nowadays and I'm not throwing shade at those people. I'm just saying, I'm very proud of the fact that we made it work with our kids. We would go to concerts with three kids in tow. Wow. I've, uh, I've, I've got two young ones myself, Paul, and uh, I must admit that uh, that scares me what you're just talking about because, <laughs> like you said, I've got grandparents around and I'm very fortunate in that aspect. Um, yeah. But I suppose yeah. it's like what you don't have, you don't know. Um, was that was that something that did scare you when you did it or you like, no, like particularly like you're yeah. saying, you sort of made it up yourself, like you just knew it would work because you would make it work? You know, it, I mean, deep down, I think it, it comes back to my wife and I both have a fairly adventurous spirit and we're not afraid, afraid to try new things. Like when we found out we were going to Alaska, we were both excited and we didn't even know what that really meant. We just jumped in the truck and we drove from, from Panama city, Florida, all the way to Anchorage, Alaska, me and my wife and a kid in the back of a, in a, in a truck. And all we had was a copy of a magazine and a CB radio. This was way back before cell phones and Google Maps and all that stuff. I mean, we just took off into the great unknown and just figured, I guess we figured it would work out in the end. And that fearlessness, I think, goes a long ways. Mm, and and mindset, do you know what I mean? Like you, the, the mindset you tell yourself or the narrative or the story that, you know, you portray when you're going somewhere, you were looking optimistic. You were looking at it as, mm. you know, an adventure. Whereas if you had been like thinking about the negatives, then straight away, it's already going to be an issue. Um, and I know, yeah, 100%. you know, that that's what we tell ourselves, isn't it? It's so important. Yeah. Now, you know, one of the things that I talk about on my show a lot is positive mental attitude. And if you go into a situation thinking positively about it and what the potential outcomes could be, the good pieces of it. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Like I got... I got sent to an assignment where I wasn't flying for one time. And it was a three years, three years outside of a cockpit where I just trained for years and years to get very good at my job flying and, and going fast and doing all that cool guy stuff. And then I got sent to a non-flying assignment and I was very upset about that because I wanted to fly. Right. I thought that was where my career was going to take me. And it took me a few months to realize, man, the location that we went to was freaking awesome. We were in Northern Tennessee, Southern Kentucky, the rolling hills up there. It's just beautiful. There's lakes and rivers everywhere. You can go hike and fish and camp and doing all the good, good country boy stuff that we like to do. We were closer to family. We were closer to Nashville, a town that my wife and I had always loved. The assignment was really cool. I get to blow a lot of things up and hang out with some really cool people. So once you shift your focus to the positive things, man, there's nothing but growth after that, because now you're looking at, you're just looking at the cool, positive potential of this of this situation that you find yourself in if you find yourself focusing on the negative things and you get mired in this this mindset of this woe is me you get what i like to call the poor me's and you're like everything happens to me well get over that crap man look at the glass half full kind of side of it oh i know we're gonna have a great chat here for because i <laughs> totally agree with that. but you know what you're saying there is 
it's very easy to say for someone that does have that mindset and that attitude and that that's how you approach things. But for other people, it's not that easy. Um, Is there any, is there any like training or strategies that you have done to get better at that over the years? Or it sounds, or is that just something, you know, that optimistic, you know, positive outlook you've always had? No, I don't know if I've always had that. I, I think it's a skill that you develop over time and, and it is, it's a mindset thing. And and when we start talking about mindset, if you want to go deep into the mindset stuff, I talk about that a lot on the various shows that I'm on. I talk about it on my show. I write about it in my book, all this stuff, but uh, it, it is a learned skill that you have to devote time and effort into developing that skill, just like anything else, like public speaking or giving presentations or, or writing or whatever you're trying to develop, playing guitar, whatever it is. You have to de- you have to devote a certain amount of time and effort to it, thousands of hours, and a lot of it comes down to just sitting in a room by yourself and doing some mindfulness practices and maybe some even some meditation or visualization of your days. And you know, I think generally speaking, people are very good at sitting around and dreaming, and you know, daydreaming. And oh man, it'd be so nice if I just won a million dollars today. What would I do with that? Okay, well, what if you could go out and make a million dollars and Put yourself in kind of a different mindset of giving forth the effort to get the outcome that you want versus sitting around waiting for something. That saying that 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 goes, the good things are the uh, good things come to people who wait, right? In other words, patience is a virtue, and I understand that. However, the good things that come to those who wait is just a crap left over from the guys who worked their butts off and got there first. <laughs> I could not agree more. At the end of the day, you uh, you get what you give and what you put out to the world is uh, essentially, you know, it may not always be good, but at least you're getting something because you're making things happen. Yeah. And that's, well, that's how we you know, and they, when, when I decided to title my book, Work Hard, Don't Suck, you know, okay, I could see where that may turn some people off because people don't want to be told to go out and work their butts off. And people don't want to be told that they suck and to try to suck less. But when you look at it from a mindset point of view, right, if you put forth maximum effort, into everything that you do and you try to suck a little bit less than you did yesterday, that means that you're improving, right? It's a mindset thing. It's not me telling you that you suck. It's a mindset of I'm trying to get a little bit better every day. These small incremental changes that we can do to make ourselves a better version of ourselves than we were yesterday. That's all. And and that's all it is, isn't it? It's as simple as that. Do you know I mean like each day you have the opportunity to improve a little bit? It's not going catastrophic and making these huge gains. Like, and I talk about this a no. lot, you know, New, New Year's resolutions, no, no, no. but like a, a lot of people don't stick at them because they go too hard too early and they try and make too big a gains. Whereas, yeah. like you're saying, it's just a little win each day. They all add up. That's it. Well, and, and let me give you two examples, okay, or, or two stories to fill in there. One of them is, When I was going through flight school, I learned this thing called the 60 to 1 rule, right? And everything in aviation is based off the compass rows, 360 degrees, or the division of a minute or the division of an hour, right? Well, the 60 to 1 rule goes like this. If I told somebody to fly a heading of north, which is a heading of 360, if they flew 359, that's only one degree of separation. After 60 miles, they're going to be one mile off course. Simple math, right? It's just a triangle. That's all it is. Well, if you apply that to your day-to-day efforts and your day-to-day life, what's the what's the correlation there? Small incremental changes can yield a tremendously big outcome if you give it enough time. The other piece of it is what you just brought up about New Year's resolutions is I literally just had this conversation with my mom who's thinking about starting this new diet program. And I said, <laughs> look, I'm personally, okay, now this is just me and I'm not, I'm not throwing shade on anybody, but just for me, I don't subscribe to any of these mainstream fad diets, the, the ketos, the Atkins, any of that junk, right? 
when I start thinking about modifying my diet and my eating habits, I look at it like this. Is this something I can sustain for the rest of my life? That's the only question I ask myself. Can I give up fast food for the rest of my life? Probably. Pro I mean, yeah, I might go out and have some. I like to go to Cold Stone Creamery and get some ice cream every now and then. But I'm not going to stop by Jack in the Box and get a double cheeseburger on my way home from work every day. You know, so again, it's just these small incremental changes. Could you do this? Is this sustainable for the rest of your life? Eating nothing but bacon for the rest of your life is probably not sustainable. But my one of my goals every week is to eat five salads. Can I eat five salads every week? Yeah, I can do that. I just had one right before I jumped on your show. Well, there you go. You've already ticked one off for the week. I like that. Yeah. Now, you, you mentioned, obviously, uh, Top Gun growing up. They had some uh, really good names like Maverick and Goose and things like that. Yeah. Did you? Is that something you all get in the Air Force? Did you have a really cool name, Paul? So every... Everybody who flies fighter jets, this is this is really a fighter jet exclusive kind of thing. You get a you get a flying call sign, and my flying call sign was Roscoe. And if you want to look me up on the interwebs, it's paulroscoewhite.com. Yeah, and I, I did see that. And when I was looking, you know, doing yeah. a little bit of research, I was wondering where the Roscoe come from because Paul and White, they don't really, there's no Roscoe in there. So how yeah. did is there a reason behind that name, or is do you just get given random names? I'm really intrigued well, kinda, by this. It's it's kind of funny that you brought that up because my middle initial is R. Okay. So it it could be Roscoe, but and in fact a, a lot of people I've been introduced as Paul R. White. Oh, I mean Paul Roscoe White, like like these guys are drawing these lines of parallel between the two, but they're unrelated. Um I got the call sign because I'm a good old country boy and going back to the Dukes of Hazard, um uh, Roscoe P. Coltrane. Yep. <laughs> uh, it's so really not cosmic. <laughs> that's what I mean. I always, uh, you should never assume, should you, when, you know, with a nickname or things like that. And sometimes you don't want to know yeah. the story because, <laughs> and well, all if my, if my, if my call sign was like trash can or something, then, <laughs> you know, that'd be, probably be a little bit funnier, but no, pretty no. simple. Oh, I like that. Now, obviously, being, you know, 21 years of flying and all, well, you had three years mm -hmm. of not flying. I'm sure all deployments weren't the same, but, um, sure, highs and lows. Um, I can imagine there was quite a lot of those. Um, do you have any yeah. like really stories that stand out of like a really high experience or mm. a low experience that, you know, really made you stop and contemplate and think about and grow from? Gosh, man, I, I, I could build you a list. Um, <laughs> can you I, give me two? I started, I started, we're going to need more than an hour. I, <laughs> I started out in the air force as the lowest that you could get. I started out as an airman basic. I enlisted in the air force, go back to our previous conversation about mentors I didn't really have anybody to to put me down a path, so I was kind of making it up as I went, and so I enlisted first, and then I climbed my way up to about the middle of the enlisted ranks, maybe just slightly above the middle of the enlisted ranks, but simultaneously had managed to get all my college and stuff done, so I applied to officer school. That's when they offered me a flying position, so I did eight years as an enlisted man and then crossed over and started flying, and during that time, during, during the, the cumulative period, several several points just jump out and and i think that one of them probably the one that's had the most significant impact on me just personally was my last deployment that i was on it was a nine-month deployment which is there's no easy way to cut that nine months just freaking sucks right away from home in buttholistan doing the job but what it did though is it helped me shift my mindset away from the air force being a lifestyle and more as a job. And that allowed me to kind of divorce Roscoe from Paul 
to where I could focus more on my family. And that's when I think I turned a corner. This was like in my mid thirties or so, I think. So that helped me turn a corner in my life and start putting my money where it really counted. Cause I, I've been saying this for a long time when I get old and I'm in a nursing home wearing diapers, it's not going to be the air force. that's there to wipe my butt. It's going to be my wife and my kids and, and grandkids. And so I, I, I chose during that deployment was a really good turning point for me to choose to invest in the right things. You think uh, that's one area that a lot of people have not attachment issues, but that identity, you know, that um, and oh, this, 100%. Could be, this could be any, but this is for anyone, Paul, you know, like yeah, any anybody, profession. Yeah. 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 Not, not mm. you know, that it's a lot easier to think about our identity as our work because sometimes it's hard when you start, you know, because yes. sometimes you go to work to escape things with your family, like having kids and things like that. I must admit, I just walked down my house and it's like a, it's like a zoo, you know, like it, it's, yeah. it's hard. So it's easier to come and, you know, identify yourself as what you're doing. Did, so was that like a turning point for you where you like that light bulb went off and, you know, Roscoe and Paul were two separate things instead of being one? Yeah. Well, we'll look at it from the point of view of, you know, we have this alter ego when we go to work and I'm talking about, you know, my career field specifically, we have this alter ego when we go to work where I'm Roscoe, the fighter pilot, and I wear my flight suit and I strap on my jet and I sail off into the, the yonder to get my air medals and all that good stuff. And it is very, very easy. It's a slippery slope to carry that stuff home and to carry it into, into your church on Sundays and carry it into every facet of your life and be that persona or be that alter ego of yourself. But when you when you learn to where you can divorce those, I mean, we got named something different for crying out loud. I mean, I was Paul all the way up. And then all of a sudden, now I'm another person. I'm named another person. I'm expected to be another person. And I think when you get to the point where you can separate the two and and no kidding, have really good left and right boundaries on when each one of those people is available and, and ready to come out. I just think that that's pretty awesome. And I see it a lot. Um, I mean, I'm a little bit older. I'm, I've been retired now for almost six years and I see it a lot in anyone who's really devoted their, their careers to service. So law enforcement, fire department, paramedics, uh, obviously military, you know, and any nursing, nursing gets wrapped up into this too. And, and doctors to, a, to a certain degree, but I think it's really easy to get lost in that identity and lose yourself in that and forget who you really are and what really matters in your life. Mm, and I know, obviously I was, I was a teacher and, you know, teachers the same, you know, like anytime that you were putting somebody else before yourself, um, exactly. That's why I said service. Yeah. 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 And that's, oh, I totally agree with what you're saying there, Paul. It's, um, it's a very rewarding career and sometimes trying to shut that off. Um, you know, we need that. We need to feel wanted and validated and yeah. things like that. And that's the beautiful thing about serving others. Do you find particularly from your work and the people you're working with that people that, you know, put others first in that service really struggle sometimes to transfer that back to themselves and look after themselves as number one? Um. I don't know. I don't know if the two are related. I don't know. I don't know if I have a lot of experience with that. I mean, personally, I've, I've gone through phases of my life, different seasons in my life where I've been very self-centered. Like when I was going to college and working a full-time job at the same time, I kind of went into me mode for a little while because I, I mean, out of necessity, I almost had to, to be able to focus on the right things because I knew that if I sacrificed at that time, and this was, my kids were very, very little. 
I finished my master's degree about a month before my youngest kid was born. So wow. this is very early in our marriage. And, and, and my wife and I talked about this where we made a conscious decision of, Hey, we're going to sacrifice and put time in and, and put the effort in now because the kids won't really remember it too much. It's not a, it, the, the, the impact is not going to be as significant. Flight school was another example, you know, going on some of the deployments. When I would go on deployment, I had to go into me mode for a little while because that's how I would focus on my mission so that I don't break the wrong things or kill the wrong people. And I think being able to learn how to turn that on and turn that off, that's where you get these seasons of your life. And uh, I'm happy to report now in my elder years after I've retired that that part has kind of gone away. And really, man, I just, I, I have learned to just love seeing that that look on somebody's face when I can help them achieve something that they didn't think was possible. Mm. And and so realistically, you were you're still serving, but you've just changed the narrative or the uniform that you're putting on. Um, yeah, and that's and that's great that you've been able to find a different you know, and we and we all gravitate and change in life, and change is good if you want it to be. Um, but essentially, you found something to fill that gap um, since retiring six years ago. Well, I found a few things. So one is I still kind of do the same job that I did when I was on active duty. I just wear khakis and a polo shirt to work instead of wearing my flight suit. I'm a civilian flight instructor. So I get to see the next generation of fighter pilots coming through the Air Force and get to tell them, you know, old guy stories. And so there I was and and that kind of stuff. Also, I've moved into kind of a, a personal coaching and mentoring, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, through coaching football for a lot of years and then and then growing my kids up i've had a an opportunity to interact with a lot of youth a lot of young men in transition periods in their lives and you'd be surprised or maybe you wouldn't you'd uh at how many of those kids are just kind of left out to dry and i've really enjoyed filling that role for a lot of these boys i get i get kids calling me two three times a week just giving me updates on their life and, you know, asking what's next and, and trying to get them to turn a corner into real life. So mm. that transition from, from high school into, into real adulthood, I think is just a critical time in these kids' lives. And I'm happy to, I'm happy to jump in there and help them learn some of the lessons that I had to learn the hard way. hundred percent. It is a, it is a really hard period because you think about school, it's, it's all structured. It's bells. You get told what yeah. to do. And then all of a sudden that's all gone, you know, and you've got to figure things out. You're not accountable to anyone. It's, it's such a huge adjustment. I'm so glad that you said that because I've been saying this for a while now. It's when these kids are in high school, that's their why for everything that they do. That's why they get up early in the morning. That's why they keep their haircut. That's why they get dressed nice and why they, uh, you know, they're socially interactive and all these different facets of their life that are required of them later down the road, that's their why is their social circles and hanging out and, and, and going to high school. And then one day you get a diploma and they say, thank you. And then it's over with yeah. now what that's, that's the, that's the critical question and the critical piece to where people like me need to jump in there and, and yourself, these guys who have been there before, who kind of know the answers to the test by now to be able to fill in and go, okay, guys, well, guess what? The easiest part of your life is over. It just gets harder from here. So here's some tips and tricks on how to win. And that's where I like to jump in. Mm, I love that too. And I think like you mentioned now, I'm a huge believer in team sports and being part of something, yeah, you know, part of a community and a culture, because yeah. if you do, 
you know, if you are struggling or you're a little bit, you've got so many people that can call on and rally with you. And yeah. not only that, you've got coaches, but there's a lot of teammates that are the same age that are going through the same thing. So, you know, you've yeah. got that tribe. Um, that is crucial. Bingo. That's it? the word right there. Mm. Yep. That's the word. I was hoping you were going to say it. If you didn't, I was, <laughs> is you have to find a tribe. And guess what? After high school, your tribe disperses. Your bros that you hung out with for all those years, they all go to different colleges or they start working different jobs and you don't hang out as much. And, you know, you're, your circle of influence is dispersed a lot more and you have to find that tribe. You have to find your people and find ways to get that connection, that very basic human need of connection that's in the stem of your brain that goes back to the Paleolithic era. We have to have that. And so many kids, especially now in the digital age, so many kids have just lost that ability to be able to do that. And I like to take them out and, hey, we're going to get together on a Friday night and go get a pickup basketball game. Guess what? We're all there in person. We're all ribbing and giving each other crap, and we're having a good time, and we have real good conversations. Mm, so true. And then that face-to-face, that human interaction and connection is something yeah. that it doesn't matter what you do. I don't think you can replace it with anything. And I no, know a lot can't. of people, I know a lot of people, Paul, that they find it awkward or they're socially anxious going there. But once they get there to any situation, they're like, I'm so glad I made the effort because it fills yeah. you up. Yeah. Well, you know, not only that, but there's a, there's a chapter in my book, not to plug my book all the time, but there is a chapter in there that says everything you need to know from life, you can learn from the game of football. And I'm talking about football with two O's, not football with a U like you do, but <laughs> the, the concept is the same showing up on time, being prepared, following instructions, you know, being able to know when to lead and when to follow. There's so many things about being on a team like that, especially if you're on a high-performing team and a dynamic team, like a, like a good sports team. You can learn so many valuable life skills through doing something like that. That I mean, it'd be very difficult to learn all of those individually somewhere else. Mm, so true. And we are going to give your book a bit of a plug. Definitely. Um, I think one of the things you just mentioned there, Paul, is there's skills that you don't realize you're learning until you've learned them and you know. Until like, yeah, until yeah, it's and, over. That, and that's that's why team sports or or just even doesn't have to be team sports, being part of something, learning how to win, learning how to lose, communicate, you know, going through the highs and lows, yeah. being vulnerable, being resilient, all these different things, they come from being committed to other people and trying to that's achieve right. something together. Well, that and that commitment is really it's being committed to something that's bigger than yourself. You know, the, the whole concept behind the team is the sum of the parts is bigger than the individual uh, pieces, right? So when you commit to something like that, you're committing to something that's a higher cause than yourself. And you learn the value of leaving it all in the field and doing things for your teammates and knowing your role and executing that role at a high level, be damned of what the other people are doing. Yeah. So true. And that, and if you do that well, and you learn that you learn that that's a role in life. It doesn't matter where you are. Yeah. Your, your life yeah. as a friend in a family, in a workplace, <laughs> wherever you are, you're going to have different roles throughout and you may not always yeah. like them, but you're going to have to execute it for the better off of the team or the situation you're in. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a country boy. I grew up in Alabama and I love Nick Saban and the Alabama Crimson Tide roll tide. And he tells this story about, I'll translate it to the workplace. So take that kid who played, say, high school football like I did and like all my boys did, and then you put him in a work environment a few years down the road, right? And they put that kid into a role that he doesn't necessarily want to do, like cleaning the bathrooms, right? Nick Saban tells this story about if you're put in a role like that, you should do that role so well. If it's go get the coffee or pick up everybody's lunch or clean the bathrooms or whatever it is, 
do that role so well that they put a sign outside of your hometown that says the best toilet cleaner lives here. <laughs> that's the, that. but that's all that's all just mentality though right yeah. that's going into it with a positive attitude going you know what i don't like doing this but if i do it well enough and i've got my own story of this when i was a young airman i was put on hanger detail one day and that is mopping the hanger floor and cleaning the bathrooms and i hated it absolutely hated it and at the end of the day i went up to my flight chief and i said look i don't know what i did to piss you off but i don't want to do that anymore and he said sorry man it was your turn so I changed my mindset. I changed my tactics. I changed my attitude. I went in and started giving a little bit more effort. I started helping out in jobs that I wasn't necessarily assigned to. I would help people put their tools away. I started studying a little bit more. And next time it was my my turn to do hangar detail, magically, the flight commander had something else for me to do. Yeah. And it was all 100% by just changing my attitude a little bit. And isn't it funny that uh, it's not by you saying, oh, I don't like this. I don't want to do it. How often does that, the yeah, person- he or hears that say, all the time. Yeah, of course he does. And how often does yeah. he go, oh, sorry, Paul, uh, sorry to hurt your feelings. Oh, we'll change that. We'll, I'll, I'll do yeah. it for you. But yeah. BS, that never happens. Guess what? That doesn't happen in real life. It might've happened <laughs> when you were little. It might've happened in your house or, you know, mommy and daddy had a soft spot for you, but in the real life, it's very unforgiving and they generally don't care how you feel about things. There's a job <laughs> that needs to get done and you're the one to do it. Yeah. And, and you lead by your actions and your attitude, like you've just mentioned there. Now that yeah. it's so true. So I want to know one thing because every time I get on a plane, I'm sitting nearly right up the back and I don't really enjoy it. What's the <laughs> rush like? Well, when, like you're flying a fighter jet, you know, like, do you still fly every day? And just what's the buzz like? It must be electric. It, I'm not going to lie. I'd be lying if I said it wasn't fun. It is. Yeah. It's a hell of a lot of work. But it is a lot of fun. And, you know, for for every hour that we would spend in the air with the jet strapped on, there's probably eight or nine hours behind the scenes that nobody ever sees. That's the mission preparation, the planning, the briefing, um, getting all your gear on and making sure it's all right, doing all the ground operations. And then you finally get to go fly for an hour, hour and a half or so. And then you got to come back and debrief it. So you got to undo everything that you just did. And that just takes a tremendous amount of time. Oh, by the way. Everyone in a fighter squadron has another job aside from flying. So maybe you're a scheduler or you're uh, in charge of the training development for the rest of the team, or like I was a chief of safety for a long time, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But you have to go and do that job too. So it makes for some really long days. Uh, it's kind of like, I, I, I kind of use this analogy. I don't know if you ever played golf before, but not I'm not well. a very good golfer, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm not Neither a very good I. golfer. But let's let's imagine you're on the back nine and you're on like hole 12 and you hit that one really just sweet shot. You know, you, you got a couple of beers in you, you're feeling good. And you just, I mean, everything from your approach to the ball to your swing and you felt the contact was like smooth like butter. And you put, you took that perfect like six inch divot out of the ground and the ball hits like three feet from the cup and you start telling yourself this story of, oh man, I'm pretty good at golf. I can do this. If I just, if I could just string together a few of those, it's kind of like that, you know? So you, you hit one good shot and it makes the whole 18, in my case, probably triple digits worth of shots worth it. It's kind of like that with flying, you know, you, you, you put in all this work and all this effort for that one hour of, of just feeling really cool. 
the uh, comeback next week shot that one's called, Paul. You only yeah. need one. <laughs> I wish that I was better at the golf lingo, but that's the best analogy I can come up with. <laughs> I think a lot of people can relate to it. Well, I really can. And I think what you just mentioned about flying, it's exactly the same as a team sport. You know, you put so much preparation in and training. People don't see that. They only see yeah. the game, you know, and a lot of a lot of team yeah. sports go, you know, for 60, hour, uh, 60 minutes to two hours, mm-hmm. essentially like how long you're flying. And then you go on debrief yeah. afterwards as well um it's funny what people think and what they see that's the the fun part there's all different elements that go into every job that you don't see to make sure that it all goes right um like sport you know look at all look at all your successful people though look at your successful entrepreneurs and your successful ceos and and the guys who have really made something of themselves a musician for example i mean any of these people yeah, you see them on stage and they're raking in millions of dollars and they got all these fans and everything, but you don't understand that they've been playing guitar since they were five years old and they devoted 10 hours a day of practice, you know, thousands and thousands of hours of doing this stuff. And these successful entrepreneurs who are grinding for 20 hours a day for decades to get to where they are so that they can drive that cool car and have that hot chick on their arm. You see the cool car and the hot chick, but you don't see the two decades worth of hard work that they did and all that sacrifice and stuff. So when people talk to me about, well, it must be nice. You got so lucky. Uh Uh-uh, dude. I climbed tooth and nail, scratching and clawing to get to where I was and to be able to do the things that I did. And when you think that you get there, if you think that that's over, uh uh-uh, you just set a new standard for yourself. And if you let the foot off the gas for even a second, you're going to fall right back down. Somebody else is going to pass you and it's all over with. Mm, so true and i think a lot of time people just say that because they want to justify that they they want to be there or they want to do it as well but you know saying you're lucky that gives them validation that maybe he, yeah you know maybe paul you are lucky um instead of like oh how hard was it what have you done did you grind was it highs and lows you know mm. the journey was long was hard was tough it was rewarding and said oh you're lucky um does that ever annoy you it annoys me when people come with that kind of mindset because luck is the prep is a combination of preparation and timing, right? Okay. Some of it, the timing piece of it, I'll give you that being in the right place at the right time is that that's probably part of it. Right. But normally most circumstances you're in that place at that time because of something you did, you either started hanging out with the right people or you went and got the right certifications or you put in the right preparation on the front end so that you can get the rewards in the back end. And a lot of people dismiss that. And a lot of people don't account for the fact that you put in years of hard work. Dude, I went to school for three years with three little kids at my house, right? there, I didn't watch football on Sunday afternoons for three freaking years because I was in the library doing homework. I remember going through flight school with with maps and charts all over my table, bouncing a six month old on my, on my lap. Like nobody saw that. Nobody, nobody saw the hard work and the, and the long nights and, you know, drinking a buttload of coffee just to stay awake, to try to get this stuff done. They saw the back end of it where, oh, well, he got lucky. He gets to fly fighter jets. No dude, I worked my butt off and I got in touch with the right people and I took the right risks and I made some really good calculated measured decisions with the information and I, I got what I wanted in the end. So the message to your listeners is if you do the preparation and you start to change your mindset a little bit, some of these doors start to open for you. There's a second piece to this though, right? And, and I talk a lot about opportunity. Uh, on my podcast, I talk a lot about opportunity and I talk a lot about this preparation and the mindset and everything, but there's another element to it. And it's the fearlessness to be able to actually take the opportunity. I was offered an opportunity to move to Phoenix, Arizona. 
several years ago. And my wife and I sat there for seven days to try to make this decision. We weighed all the pros. and We literally took a piece of paper, drew a line down the middle and started writing pros and cons to this decision. It's a big family move. Our kids were in high school or middle school, and there's a lot of moving parts that go into this. Ultimately, we sat down and we said, you know what? Screw it. Let's take a chance and see what happens. And we're still here in Phoenix today. We love it down here. Yeah. Would have never gotten, would have never been here in my house doing the things that I'm doing with the people that I enjoy doing it with, had I not been fearless enough to take that opportunity. I could have stayed in the rut. I could have stayed in my comfort zone, but listeners, take a piece of paper and draw a circle and write the word comfort in it. Everything that you want out of life is outside of that circle. Oh, so true. So true. And I suppose that's when uh, there's your bumper sticker for the, well, that's for the, work, for the work hard. Yeah, no, it is. It is like work hard. Don't suck. It's like, essentially what you're saying is, you know, put the work in and you need to step outside that comfort zone. Um, do you mention much about that in your book? Let's, let's talk about your book because I know yeah. um, I've, I've been wanting to have you on the show for a while now, Paul, but um, you've been doing your book, you've been putting the work in. Um, so let's talk about it, mate. What, uh, yeah. what can people expect? I know you've obviously given a lot away today, but uh, trying to yeah, give it a bit more of a plug, mate, because I'm excited. Yeah. Well, I mean, the book is a passion project of mine and full disclosure, it's a letter to my kids. And when you read the introduction, I write to my kids. I, I raised three boys. I had a bonus son come and live with me for about a year and a half. Actually going to get to see him graduate uh, military basic training here uh, next week, actually. Um, it's a message to my kids. My kids were getting ready to go out. They're going to leave the nest and start to go write their own narratives of life. And I wanted to give them one last shot of dad advice, something tangible that they could carry around with them and go, hey, I wonder what the old man said about xyz and that's where the book came from i listed out a whole bunch of dad advice started writing about 800 words per topic and work hard don't suck is the result of it yeah i uh i love that is that uh would have been a very obviously rewarding process writing down you know that everything you've learned oh, it was fun. Time, but but more importantly very rewarding knowing that uh you know, it was only for four well your son and you, you said you've had um another yeah. one stay with you so essentially just having an audience of four people that each time, yeah. you know, you're writing it down, that, that must've made you feel pretty good on the inside. It was fun, man. And, and, you know, I'm not the kind of guy, like I've never really thought about sitting down and writing my memoirs or anything, or, or I never been tremendously disciplined about journaling, but this was a, this was an opportunity for me to capture a lot of family history and tell some stories from when they were very young and give them a peek behind the curtain of why we parented the way that we did sometimes, because here's, here's a secret for you. Your kids are littler or smaller. You don't know if you're doing the right things until they go out into the real world and the real world gives you feedback on whether you parented good or not. Right. So we all just kind of make this stuff up. Every parent, we just kind of make it up as we go. And there's some guidelines out there and depending on who you hang out with and what your circles are and what your value system is, that's going to determine a lot of it. But generally speaking, I mean, like when my kids were born, I wasn't handed a checklist that said, teach them all this stuff in the next 18 years and they'll be okay. So I sat down and wrote the checklist. And that's literally what the back cover says is I wrote the checklist. If you teach them, there's 61 topics in there. And a lot of them are, uh, a lot of them are fun. Some of them are more serious, but it's all, I draw it all back to my family and our family values and I think that if you're able to communicate some of these things to your children throughout that 18 years, when they do get ready to go out and write their own stories, I think they're going to be pretty well prepared. Mm. And I just think it's a lovely, uh, 
a lovely, you know, as you said, like you, you parenting probably the first 18 years is the most important uh, and never, and never yeah. die. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's always important, but essentially you've done your apprenticeship is what you might want to say there. And um, what a lovely way to, you know, tie it all together and put it in a book so that they've got that to keep and they can call on at any time. They've got the 61 yeah. things that you value and you've put into them. Yeah. Um, do you ever sit back, Paul, and oh, particularly now that your book's out and think about your career, your family, what you've, given up to get where you are you're not lucky you know that you've put the work in what are you most proud of of everything you've achieved oh i'm i'm happy that my kids are independent and they value that you know one of the exercises that we'll have you do if you come and listen to my podcast is we want everybody to go through the thought exercise of defining your personal values one of those personal values one of my personal values is freedom and under underneath that is independence something that my wife and i've prided ourselves on since we got together is we make our own decisions we don't rely on anybody everything that we have we've built together and we're very independent we we owe nobody anything at this point in our lives and i'm very proud that my kids kind of have that same mindset they are they are ready and i think they're prepared to go out into the real world and write their own stories Mm, so true because at the end of the day it is their story it's not yours for, to tell for no. them um but it's giving them the skills and the confidence and uh the understanding that they can do yeah. it you know and, and the only way they get that is by watching what you've done and your wife um well that's, that's and that's, that's an the Im- biggest thing about yeah. parenting isn't it like yes you know, yes yeah. well what you just said though that's that is a super key and, and it was it was very subtle the way you said it but that's a very nuanced key that you mentioned is they're watching, right? Yeah. When they're little, you can get away with kind of giving them the shaky finger and say, you need to go clean your room, right? Well, eventually they're going to start developing thoughts of their own and you have to lead by example. And I remember exactly when this happened for me, my kids were about 14 years old and I could just tell around the house that they're not listening to me yell at them and get onto them anymore. They're watching my example. So it's very important parents that we embody our personal values you you first have to identify them and then you embody those your kids are watching and i know my oldest son is 27 years old and every time i talk to him every time my wife talks to him there's little pieces that come out little things that he says little actions that he takes the things that he's teaching his kids we see the parenting coming out in that and if you're not thinking about that when your kids are eight or ten years old then they're not going to be watching you when they're 18 years old. So yeah. I say start early, start emulating what you want in the behavior. If you're driving through traffic and you're slinging around four-letter words at the guys driving around you and and how bad they're doing and throwing up your middle finger everywhere, guess what your kid's going to do, right? They're going to follow your example and not necessarily your words. Yeah, so true. Um, and that's it. Uh, that They are watching, like you said, they're sponges. Mine are, mine are very oh, yeah. young, and I am still aware of that now, um, that – yeah, I, I just think you can never underestimate. You can always talk, but uh, they watch and watching is more important than yeah. words. Well, dude, it and this is, again, I'm not a doctor. I'm not studied any of this stuff. I just have some experience in it. That's all. But it it usually always made me feel bad when I would let my temper get the better of me. And so I just learned over time, instead of instead of being that person, I would... I would kind of shut down for a minute, remove myself from the situation because there's some things, words are like bullets from a gun, man. Once you say them, you can't unsay them, you know, and, and I've always just, 
I don't know, I've developed this, this thing about myself that I'm very conscious about the things that I say, because I don't want to say something either. I don't mean, or that can't be taken back or is taken out of context or something like that. I would rather be very measured with my words. I mean, this is a very candid conversation and you and I are, are kind of riffing and having fun, but if you're getting into a serious discussion with someone, I think you're, you're much more, you're much better off by being a little measured, a little stoic. And that definitely goes into your family as well. Sometimes it requires, it requires putting on a, what we call a resting bitch face in the United States. Um, I know that and, face. And I think that's not universal. showing, <laughs> not showing any emotion. You know, you, you don't, you don't want to be too high or too low. You might be boiling on the inside, but you can't let people see that. Right. You, you have to be a little bit stoic about it. Remove yourself from the situation, scream into your pillow, do whatever you have to do. But then when you go back to re-engage, now you're a little bit calmer. And instead of reacting to the situation, you're responding to the situation. And, and I think that that's just a better way to approach things. Again, this is just my opinion. This has been my experience raising my boys. What, what Really what you're after, though, is 10 years down the road when they're interacting with their kids. You want them to emulate that behavior of being a little bit calmer, not riding the peaks of the waves or the, or the dips of the valleys, you want them to just be kind of even keel because that's going to trickle down to their kids too. It's uh, like we were saying before, you know, before we went on that we're just going to have fun and have a good chat. Um, I, you know, when you need something, um, I just, uh, while you're talking then I, I'm trying to be present, but all I was thinking about was a situation that I wasn't exactly what I want to be this morning around yeah. one of my boys. And uh, yeah, you hear things and um, things happen for a reason. I'm a big believer in that. Now, um, yeah. things do happen for a reason. Paul, this is episode number 315. People are listening Ooh. and they want to reach out to you. Where is the okay. best place to go for your podcast, your book, to book you for speaking, yeah. coaching, do a lot of things, mate. Where should they go? All right. Well, everybody get your pens out. Here you go. So on, let's say on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram, you can get me at Paul Roscoe White. Uh, my website, www.paulroscoewhite.com. And really kind of up in the in the very forefront of everything right now is my podcast that we just launched. We're, we're only a few episodes in, so bear with us. We're getting a little bit better with every iteration here, but www.b1change1.com. That's B and the number one, change and the number one.com. And our goals out of the podcast is we want to be the example that changes one person. That's it. It's really simple. We want to inspire people to be better versions of themselves every day. So go catch us on all the major podcast platforms. And I hope you enjoy the show. Please uh, subscribe and review and help us grow the shows. Perfect. Well, I'll have links. Uh, everybody listening, as I said, episode 315. If you go to the show notes, you'll be able to check those out. And uh, yeah. Paul, really appreciate your time today, mate. And as I said, yeah, I brother. needed to hear that last little bit. Um, I think we're on the same page. <laughs> we're on the same page with a lot of things we've come across. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you know, sometimes it's, I felt like someone was kicking me in the ribs as you were talking, mate. Like, oh, oh come on now. <laughs> come on now. You know what? It, it it gives us a good chance to reflect, and and every now and then, even as parents, we have to eat a little humble pie, and sometimes we have to go back and make amends. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, you know, I've I've said it a thousand times on my podcast that humility is a superpower. If I were to make the perfect superhero, I would say humility would be right there in the mix with all of his superpowers because the ability to say I screwed up or I don't know. Man, that just opens a door to a whole new world that you didn't even know existed. Ooh, 
it really is a superpower that uh, that being able to own it, move on, and learn from it. Um, yeah, ooh, I couldn't agree more. Well, Paul, yeah. thanks so much for your time, mate. I really appreciate it. Listeners, go and check out the new podcast website, book everything he's doing because this man knows what he's yeah. talking about. Thanks for your time, mate. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you. Thank you.